Frage, Punkt, Frage, Punkt. Also ich wollte sein Du und du wollt sein Ich. Wollt ich getroffen? Mir wollt sein Achir. Wollt dann gespielt mit mir? Question mark, question mark, question mark. If you were me and I were you, I'd be in your shoes. I would be eight and four is what you'd be. So then, would you play with me? And it's just, you know, it's such a delightful miniature because it's about empathy. It's about, you know, looking at someone in that advantage position, the, the giant that an eight-year-old represents when you're four and wondering, you know, what if the tables were turned? Then I would, would I be more interesting? During the period of great global Jewish migration around the turn of the 20th century, Yiddish got carried to almost every continent. If we want to really understand Jewish modernity, we need to look at children's literature. It is sudden and quick enough that it arose, it had a real arc, and then a really swift and unnatural decline. I have definitely found myself from time to time in that position of needing to explain why this really is serious and this is fit for substantive academic inquiry. Welcome to Joy in Conversation, a podcast about Jewish history and culture. It's with scholars, but it's for everyone. I'm Dan and I'll be your host. Join me and find joy in conversation because, well, it's a mitzvah. I have a bad habit of sprinkling Arabic into my everyday life. I'll be rushing to get out the door and I'll yell to no one in particular, Yalla, let's go. My dog will be barking at me. He'll be nipping at my toes. And I'll meet his ferocity with cries of, Chalas, enough. When I'm suddenly hit with a bout of indecision, all I have to say is Yani in long, drawn-out syllables. And it goes without saying that interspersed throughout every other conversation throughout my day is a healthy dose of Masha'Allah, Alhamdulillah, and Insha'Allah, whether or not context really calls for it. Then I'll be cooking. The smoke alarm will be seconds from going off. And as I'm lost in my own flights of nostalgia and imagination, I'm asking anyone with an earshot if they remember how to say olive oil in Arabic. Zait, anyone? Zait min zaytun? This happens a lot. And it happens in suburban Massachusetts, mostly without any native Arabic speakers around. But I don't mind. I embrace whatever spark around me triggers these words to surface and to spill over into my everyday life. Whenever someone has no idea what I'm saying and asks what all this random Arabic is about, I tend to dismissively reply that it's just a little whimsy, just some added flair to remind myself of where I've been and what I've learned from people who aren't with me now. I'll shrug and say it's fun to pepper quotidian tasks with little bits of Arabic. But in my more honest moments, I know that there's another world I inhabit when I punctuate my days with these small bits of Arabic. It's me holding on tightly to something that I cherish, some part of myself that isn't always available. It's me returning to a place 
where how I communicate tells the story of parts of myself that aren't always on display. It reminds me of these words from Miriam Udell, from the introduction to her collection of Yiddish short stories, Honey on the Page. In it, Miriam wrote, quote, A language isn't just a way of saying things, what you hope for, what you're afraid of, what you dream about, and what you wait for lunch. A language is also a way of carrying a culture with you, end quote. And this is what I think I'm doing in these moments, carrying culture with me. I'm telling myself that physical separation from a place that I love and that feels like home, a place that became home, is really not separation at all. I read Miriam's words when I picked up her edited volume of Yiddish children's literature. I thought not about myself and my relationship to Arabic, but instead to my grandparents and their relationship to Yiddish. They would sprinkle it into their conversations with family, with the generations born into a world where Yiddish was an antique, an heirloom. It was something fragile and delicate by then. But they spoke a word here and there in spite of that. Their utterances were less about the objective world around them and more a channeling of what was within them. It was something that attracted me, yet didn't quite feel like it was my own. I could hear it, but I couldn't really access it. I could parrot them, yet never really utter a word as though these words were my own. I felt like I was wearing a costume when I would speak a word or two of Yiddish. My attempts to use it, well, they were borrowed, they were temporary, never really becoming a part of my own self-expression. It was something to try on, look at, but ultimately walk away from. Then when I read the stories in Miriam's Honey on the Page, I accessed the culture inhabited by Yiddish speakers. In pieces like The Story of a Stick, I felt acutely sensitive to the changes occurring across generations of protagonists in the story. Changes that feel like standing on sand shifting underfoot. I knew the cultural distance traveled by the generations in the story. My family had traveled similar distances. Again and again, I saw myself in these stories, these English translations of Yiddish children's literature. I didn't see a childlike version of myself. I didn't see the self that would have had an adult read these stories to me in my youth. These stories communicated meaningful ideas and worthwhile lessons, the kind that you don't grow out of just because you stop having children's literature read to you. Even in translation, even in Yiddish, I felt like I was part of the stories being told. I couldn't access these stories in their original tongue, in the Mamalotion, yet I naturally inhabited the culture. That didn't require any translation. So I wanted to speak with Miriam and learn from her about these stories, the people who wrote them, the people who read them, the people who they were read to. And in doing so, I wanted to get that much closer to the culture that inhabits these stories, whether told in Yiddish or English. Let's turn to Miriam and learn more about Yiddish, about children's literature, and about why the stories in this genre are so sweet and so delicious and worthy of our attention today. Yella, let's learn together. 
I'm Miriam Udell. I teach Yiddish language, literature, and culture at Emory University. My teaching also ranges a little bit more broadly into children's literature, in comparative perspectives, and other Jewish literature besides Yiddish. We're going to talk about Yiddish children's literature. But before we do so, let's get ourselves situated in the history of the Yiddish language. What exactly is Yiddish again, and where did it come from? Where on earth can we even hear people speaking Yiddish? Yiddish used to be identified somewhat scornfully as a jargon and as a jargon. And that refers to the fact that it is a fusion language or a hybrid language. It was developed in the area now part of Germany between the Rhine and Rhone rivers around the turn of the millennium. And it was spoken by the Jewish population that lived in that area that then moved eastward over the course of the 18th and 19th centuries into the area of Eastern and Central Europe, particularly the area of Eastern Europe that came to be known as the Pale of Settlement. And it was a fusion because the vocabulary probably started out as about 65% an offshoot of Middle High German, which is kind of familiar to us as English speakers because our language is also largely an offshoot of Middle High German. And then the estimates get a little bit tricky, but probably about 15% of the vocabulary comes from the Jewish languages of Hebrew and Aramaic. And the rest is an admixture of whatever linguistic influences its speakers encountered over their travels. So some of it is Slavic vocabulary from Russian and Polish. Hungarian might be in there a little bit. There's also a very small but old stratum of vocabulary that comes from Romance languages, originally from Latin. And then Yiddish was carried by its speakers wherever they went. With this understanding of Yiddish as a language in mind, let's now focus on Yiddish children's literature. What does children's literature offer us as a source of insight into a given society and its preoccupations and its concerns? When did Yiddish children's literature really emerge as a genre? And what kind of stories were adults writing for Dikinder? Yiddish children's literature was a project, and it was historically bounded, and it had a great sense of intentionality and purpose around its creation. It was an educational outgrowth of Eastern European Jewish political life, a political life and a set of political aspirations and practices and engagements that also spread with that great global migration of Jews in the 20th century to the Americas, and particularly to New York and to North America. And so there were political parties that also gave rise to fraternal organizations, mutual aid societies, and those fraternal organizations in turn founded schools and school systems. And those schools needed educational materials for their students, and they also needed leisure reading materials for when the students were not in school. And so they founded children's publishing houses and periodicals, some of which had print runs that lasted several decades. And 
Those various imprints and periodicals each gave voice to a subtly different political vision, all of which fit into a pretty capacious Jewish left, a broad coalition of the Jewish left. So we had a range of ideologies from a straightforward secular Yiddishism that wanted the future of the Jewish people and certainly of the historical speakers of this language of Eastern European Jewry to continue in Yiddish and to continue a kind of secular but deeply rooted Jewish vision of ethics, of politics, of everything that kind of makes up a civilization and to be able to produce children who would be capable of doing that in Yiddish. And then we have another set of cultural institutions that are explicitly socialist in their orientations who really want to promulgate the brotherhood of the workers and a sense of identity through labor and showing up as part of a diverse labor coalition that could also find part of its expression in Yiddish. There is also labor-oriented Zionism that believes all of those same things about the centrality of the worker and the worker's experience, but thinks that the optimal future for the Jewish people is in the historical homeland of Israel. And then there are the full-blown communists for whom Yiddish is a means to an end of global revolution on the part of the working class. All of those subtly different ideologies from the perspective of the 21st century were coexisting in the space of education and of cultural production, and they all gave rise to their own Yiddish children's literature. So understanding that really perfervid time during the 1920s and 30s really requires us to crack open some of those books and see what kind of a vision the various cultural leaders were articulating for the next generation that they were hoping to lure to their cause. Miriam talks about Yiddish children's literature in terms of being a project. It was a project of exposing youth to visions of Jewish identity, a Jewish future. These stories instructed youth and introduce them to certain values within a Jewish way of life. Was there also a sort of national agenda to Yiddish children's literature? Were children's stories a site for imagining the community? And how were the goals of authors themselves fluid throughout the 20th century? A century defined by so much possibility and so much tumult, so much destruction for Yiddish-speaking Jews in Europe and also the Americas. It was an outgrowth of a project of cultural nationalism, of a desire to articulate what secular, modern Jewishness meant, what it sounded like, what it felt like. Most of this literature starts to be written very quickly, very suddenly almost, in the 19-teens, and that it burgeons in the 20s and 30s. And then who knows, if not for the Holocaust, if not for Stalin and his purges, 
how it might have continued a more organic life. But we have an end point where the natural audience for so much of this literature is literally decimated or worse. And then we have the post-war shift where it comes to be about cultural consolidation and preserving what was and giving some new way to connect with what was lost and who was lost. And then before we know it, Yiddish is really on the wane, at least in secular or non-Hasidic communities, it's on the wane as a spoken language. And there's a kind of sunset for this literature. So through Yiddish children's literature, we can see cultural nationalism playing out with stories being told to educate youth, bind them to a community, and imbue them with values. There's also a modern project, one where questions of equality and justice and social issues are being introduced to young people. The most frequently occurring theme across this literature as a whole is the stark fact of economic inequality in society and how that needs to be wrangled with and engaged with in some way. So we see texts that are of a very traditional stripe that are continuous with morality books that might have not been aimed specifically at children, but that would have been kind of pitched to women and children. And in the parlance of the time, men who were like women in the sense that they were not elite readers. They were reading the homier texts that women were also reading. So we see stories that engage with those questions of economic inequality by talking about the virtue of charitable giving and the Jewish forms of charitable giving known as tzedakah uh, or tzedakah, giving money to the needy. Let's now look at some of these stories. What are some examples of stories that introduce young people to questions of economic inequality? What do these plots look like? Who are some of the characters in these stories? There's a Sholem Ash story about a very wealthy man who gives a lot of charity and is approached one time by a beggar who has the stench of the road and of his travels still on him. And the man insists that he be taken and bathed and given new clothes before he'll have an audience with this beggar. And he actually has to have a great downfall in his own life and lose his wealth before he can come to fully empathize with the humiliation that he caused that man. Those stories are not really chipping away at the social order. They're just insisting on the importance of charitable giving, giving with a free and open hand, and doing so in a way that upholds the dignity of the recipient. So those are really significant, venerable Jewish values of longstanding that you would find in rabbinic texts, you would find in medieval texts all the way through. Then you get something a little bit more complicated, like Kadya Molodowski's story, The Baker and the Beggar, about a baker who lives above the shop with his family 
And every Friday, he distributes baked goods to all of the needy of his community. And there's a particular beggar that he's very fond of because the man's eyes glow and his face gives off a special radiance. And he always makes a point of handing that man the challah bread personally. And eventually the man stops coming and everyone forgets about him because as the story says, who thinks about a poor man? Who knows? Maybe his luck changed. And then one Friday afternoon, the bakery burns down. The baker loses everything, lock, stock and barrel, the family home, everything that was in it. And he is distraught because the Sabbath is coming and he doesn't even have challah for his own family to eat, let alone being able to dispense charity. And at just that moment, the old beggar with the radiant eyes comes back and it turns out that God has indeed changed his luck. And now he's a wealthy man and he has come to repay the debt of those many years of accepting charity. And he has a kerchief with the money tied up. And lo and behold, the money that he has now brought to the baker and his family is exactly the amount required to replace the bakery and the home and everything that's been lost. On one hand, that reads like a very traditional story about the doling out of charity. On the other hand, it's tapping into an idea that that word tzedakah, charitable giving, it doesn't have any cognate relationship with the Latin caritas. It doesn't have anything to do with care. It has to do with the Hebrew root tzedek, which means justice, that it's actually a form of justice. It is an evening out of the ledger of the account books to restore what has been lost, because what the baker was doing was essentially paying a debt in advance that's now able to be repaid through God's beneficence. So that's already a somewhat subversive idea. And then we get to a story like Judah Steinberg's questions about a boy from a prosperous family suddenly and in revelatory fashion coming to understand that the entire social and economic order has been created for his benefit and enjoyment, very much to the detriment of whole other classes of people and animals who are suffering so that he can grow up in comfort and plenty. There's a, a whole gamut of how we understand economic inequality and what people are supposed to do about it, how they're supposed to respond, how children are supposed to respond. And we have frank portrayals of strikes and other labor actions and all sorts of things that really range from very traditional to, as I said, ardently communist. Would Jewish content always be found in Yiddish children's literature? Or was Yiddish just a particular linguistic vehicle for more universal messages? It moves from the really distinctively Jewish content about the Jewish holidays and Jewish history that really could only have been written in Yiddish, or that certainly requires a little bit of translational effort to bring it into another language. 
And then it moves toward more and more universal themes and modes of storytelling. So there are folk tales and fairy tales that are Jewishly inflected that involve plot points like a blood libel against the Jewish community or Jewish notions of charitable giving. There are stories about fools and foolishness that have a particularly Jewish setting. And then we move from there to allegories, parables, and fables, stories about education, and finally family life that are really very universal. And a few of these stories have very little to do with the Jewish community at all. If you look at the narrative rhyming poem by the Soviet Yiddish author Leib Kritko, Boots and the Bath Squad, Boots on the Sanitarin in the original, it's a really fun, rollicking poem that has a kind of Shel Silverstein vibe to it about a little boy who loves to eat and hates to bathe. And it's a little more intense and creepy than the world of Shel Silverstein, because in the Soviet Union, if you are a somewhat rural child who hates to bathe, it turns out that the state will send sanitation agents to grab you and bathe you by force as part of their hygiene campaign of the 1920s. And it's told in a very funny way, even though it has this kind of, you know, serious intrusion of state power that's being depicted. But there is a rhyme in that poem where the bath squad arrives and the head bath man sings out with a voice like a trumpet that a Qatar cold is going around the shtetl, the kind of rural town where there is a large Jewish population. And so there is a sense of these dirty, not quite urbanized, not quite hygienic Jews who need to have the state send out agents to enforce hygiene among them. And just the insertion of that Yiddish word shtetl or shtetl in the poem's pronunciation, that's something that just gives us the subtlest indicator that we are talking about a specific ethnic population within this multi-ethnic Soviet empire. There are certain Yiddish stories in Miriam's collection of children's literature that really resonate with me. As I read The Tale of a Stick for the first time, I was gripped by it. It lingered with me for months later and continues to stir lots of emotions as I think about the arc of the story and the issues that it introduces, generation after generation of protagonists. But Miriam is much better equipped to share the plot of the story so let's turn to her to describe the plot of this Yiddish tale and what it communicates about the transformations of modernity, replete with all of its tumult and its loss. I was reading this one aloud with my child who recently turned 13 and became a bar mitzvah. This is a novella by Tzina Rabinowitz that was published after the Holocaust, and it does indeed trace quite an arc of four generations of a single Jewish family that originated in the German city of Frankfurt. 
And the husband is a wealthy, charitably minded merchant, supports all of the Jewish organizations of his town and also the Holy Land of Israel. And unfortunately, his wife is severely ill and the doctors don't know what to do for her. And so he gives charity in the hope that that will prompt some sort of a reversal of the divine decree and change her health for the better. And she actually encourages him not only to give via emissaries from the Holy Land, but to actually undertake a journey himself to distribute alms in the holy city of Jerusalem. And she promises that if he undertakes that voyage, she will wait for him. And when he gets to Jerusalem and he starts giving out charity, the line forms at the door of his hotel and a scribe who is in a state of great penury hears about the presence of this wealthy magnet from Frankfurt and he wants to lure the man to his home where he and his sons write out Torah scrolls. He's very much hoping that the man can purchase a Torah scroll. And so the scribe requests an audience and invites the visitor to come and inspect the Torah scrolls. And when he does that, the scribe's youngest son, who's a little bit of a a trickster. He realizes that if he could come up with a gift to give this wealthy visitor from Frankfurt, he will probably be given a tip of a coin or two for himself. And he very much wants that. So he starts with these really impure motivations. And he's thinking about what he can possibly get as a poor boy that will be of value to this visitor. And he alights on the idea of whittling and carving a branch of olive wood with a biblical verse. And he chooses a verse that says, when you come into the land and you plant trees. And then the verse continues with some laws of how you have to let the trees in the orchard lie fallow for a certain period before you can enjoy their fruits. But he doesn't put all of that onto the stick. He just says, when you come into the land, you shall plant. And he presents the stick to the gentleman who wants to know, why did you choose that verse? And the boy says, well, you're here in Jerusalem giving charitable donations. And that's like planting seeds because good will grow from the charity that you're distributing. And the man is very impressed. And he buys a Torah scroll and he takes that and the stick back to Frankfurt. And lo and behold, when he arrives home, there's a party going on in his parlor and there's a beautiful woman in a blue silk dress. And it turns out that this vivacious woman who's the life of the party is his wife fully recovered. And then in the next chapter, we find out that they have a son who has reached manhood and that Jews' newly granted citizen status in Germany are being called to the army to fight against France. And the man is really reluctant to send his son because it's going to devastate his mother, who's so recently healed from her illness, should anything happen to him. He consults with the rabbi, do I have to send my son? And the rabbi explains that this is the price of citizenship. When they conscript you into the army, you have to go. But send your son with his stick and with instructions to give charity 
after being saved from battle and that he should pray. And so the young man goes off and he fights in the war and the stick manages to have a role in saving his life when he's fallen into a deep chasm and he's wounded and he needs something to support him as he's trying to climb out of this chasm. He has his rifle in one hand and his stick in the other. And after the battle dies down, he finds the rabbi in Alsace and he says, look, I want to give charity and give thanks to God for saving me in the war. And he and the rabbi hit it off. And of course, the rabbi has a daughter. And lo and behold, he marries the rabbi's daughter and becomes part of the family. And they have a son. And everything's fine until that son reaches young manhood, just as the First World War is breaking out. And he needs to go and fight. And he struggles with whether he should fight for his father's fatherland of Germany or his mother's native home of France. And he decides to enlist with the French. Then he goes to war and the stick plays a role in saving his life twice. And the second time is the more interesting. He would be given up for dead after being wounded, but some soldiers find him with the carved stick and they assume that it's some kind of code and that he must be a highly placed spy. So they bring him to a German hospital in Warsaw where he is treated by a highly assimilated Jewish doctor. After he's healed and he explains the nature of the stick, he and the doctor hit it off. And the doctor has a daughter. That daughter is very beautiful. The only thing wrong with her is that she and her father are highly assimilated and very scornful of Jews and Jewish tradition. But kind of against his better judgment, the young man from Alsace marries the daughter and settles with her in Warsaw, where they are living somewhat uneasily because of their lack of shared values. They are living there when their only son, whom she has insisted on giving the Polish name of Stefan, when he turns 13, on the day of his bar mitzvah, Hitler invades Warsaw. And the father has to decide what he can do to save his son? And can he get him onto a kinder transport? And of course, the wife and her father are dead set against it. They think that he's going to be just fine because he's blonde and he's Polish and he's had a Polish education and nothing Jewish has anything to do with them. And of course, the father suspects that that's not true, that their neighbors would turn her and the boy in in a heartbeat. And so he plots and schemes and manages to drug the family with sleeping pills so that he can sneak the boy onto a kinder transport and save his life. The boy wakes up on a wagon in the Polish countryside as part of this caravan of children who are being rushed to safety by volunteers. And he finds a note in his pocket from his father explaining his decision and the stick tucked into the waistband of his coat. And he can't even read the letters carved onto the stick, but his father tells him that when the war is over, 
he's going to learn the language to read those letters, and he's going to understand much better and much more. At the end of the war, his parents are lost to him. He's transported to a children's village, which is to say an orphanage in Palestine. He does indeed learn Hebrew. He tries to figure out what to do about this stick and how to claim some sort of a connection with his lost parents. And after the war, the director of the orphanage receives a tranche of documents from Europe that includes the booklet in which his family history and his name has been written down. And so all of a sudden, he receives this information about his family history and his background. And he knows that what he needs to do is plant the stick in the soil of the children's village. And he needs to do it on the Jewish Arbor Day, Tuba Shabbat. And so he does plant the stick. He repatriates it, so to speak, in Israeli soil. And there is a tremendous sense of loss and erosion and orphanhood and what has been lost. But the story really ends on a very hopeful note about the future of Zionism and the future that he and his peers are going to build in the land of Israel. Even though they have been left without parents, they will not spend their lives without children. He's gazing at the stick and thinking about its journey and marveling. And he says, four generations, four generations, you know, that all had this semi-mystical, but at the same time, completely rationally explained relationship with this miraculous object, the stick. What does Miriam find in this text? I know what I find compelling, but what does she see as its merits? And why did she decide to include it in her book, Honey on the Page? Well, I offered it precisely because there is so much going on there. There's such richness in this text. So, of course, it is an instance of that Zionist strain of thought. It's also the longest single work in the volume and was an opportunity to showcase the writerly talent of a woman because we don't have as many women writing and publishing as we do men. I think that there is so much here to think with, both as a scholar and as a Jewish parent, about questions of transmission and what it means to pass on a tradition, even with the full recognition that every generation has to make their own way, but that certainly the Jewish landscape that somebody is looking at in 1868 is radically different from the Jewish landscape in 1914 or then again in in 1945-46. Part of the reason that I really wanted to share this story with my middle son, because the experience of preparing for a bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah of receiving a Jewish education on top of a secular education is often such a burdensome one for a child to have to learn this whole other thing, this whole other alphabet, this whole other language and way of reading and 
structure of feeling. And so I think that when we find a text that articulates the stakes of that so powerfully and also conveys the message that, yes, this is something of a burden, but it's also a real privilege. It's a real privilege to be handed the gift of understanding where you come from, of being able to unlock your people's past, in this case with the literal language of having access to the Hebrew Yiddish alphabet and how it's to be read and understood. I think that those texts are really important and that that itself is giving the child a gift to see that there's something here to be really thankful for and really excited about and to know that it's because my parents care so much to bring me into something rather than leaving me as an observer of it on the sidelines, but to bring me into the center of it. Children's literature is sometimes, or really more often, unfortunately, placed in a category of itself, a category that's made to live either on the margins of or even outside the world of sophisticated art and adult politics. Critics have relegated children's literature to a more demoted status in the world of art and ideas. So what does Miriam have to say about this? What does she have to say about the spaces and the moments where political ideas are exchanged? And what is it that we miss when we don't include children's literature in our framework of what is political and who's political? I'm imagining that these stories were read by children and then discussed with whoever was home after school. And that disproportionately at the time of publication and even still today, that was mothers and and that was women. And so this is a whole other way into the articulation of socialist ideals, but also the reception of those ideals, not in the coffee houses that are so famous and not over the chessboard or at the offices of newspapers, but around a kitchen table. This is socialism being received and integrated and kind of metabolized in real time among non-elites, among everybody else. So much of what Miriam has shared has to do with the fact that Yiddish doesn't receive the credit it deserves. It's been dismissed as jargon and not a language. Children's literature hasn't been taken seriously in literary and political circles. The cafe and the university have often been upheld as locations of political discourse, as settings where serious ideas are exchanged. Yet the tales told in bedrooms at night from rocking chairs, the tales that are discussed at the kitchen table, They have been overlooked. In spite of all of that, once we reclaim Yiddish children's literature as a legitimate site where community is defined and redefined and value systems circulate, there's a real joy in reading these stories and seeing them as having artistic depth and social relevance. The name of Miriam's book, Honey on the Page, is itself a testament to that joy. But what exactly does that title mean? And where does it come from? 
So the title gestures at a tradition that came to us from Eastern Europe and in modified form, it was part of my own American Jewish upbringing and education. And the tradition was that on the first day of school, the instructor would smear a dab of honey on the first page of each pupil's alphabet primer. And then before the lessons began, each student would lick up that honey so that all of the subsequent learning would be sweet. And the version of it that I experienced no longer involved the honey because that was way too messy for a modern Hebrew school. But what we had was little handfuls of chocolate, something like M&Ms, that the teacher went around and sprinkled on top of the workbook that each of us had received at the beginning of class. And I think that the relationship between the honey and the chocolate is something like the relationship between the Yiddish originals, which are sweet and delicious and messy and somewhat ungovernable, and the translations, which do try to make things a little bit neater and a little bit more streamlined and able to be received and enjoyed by the modern English-speaking reader, and that the idea remains the same, which is to take all of the lessons that this literature has to teach and find a way to make them sweet. Miriam talks about involving ourselves and finding ways to make these texts appeal to ourselves today. I love this. Picking up a short story from 60 or 100 years ago can feel like we're only doing so to investigate another time. I could look at this as an academic exercise, attempting to deconstruct the text and grapple with the discourse of socialist or Zionist or Bundist Jews at the turn of the 20th century. I could do all of that, and I would really enjoy it. Or, instead, I could sit down with the kinder in my life and savor the honey on the page. And wouldn't that be just as delicious? A special thanks to Miriam Udell. It was a real treat talking to you. If you'd like to learn more about Miriam, visit miriamudell.com. There you can find information about her book of Yiddish children's literature and translation, Honey on the Page. Thanks as always to Nico Rivers for music supervision, as well as mixing and mastering Joy in Conversation. To learn more about Nico's work, visit nicoriversrecording.com. Alec Hudson is responsible for our graphic design and Klezmer theme song. Thanks to Alec for his talents and creativity. To learn more about Alec's designs, visit warbirdcreative.com. And to learn more about his music, visit alechutson.com. Our website design is by Jacob Lazar. Our episodes feature music by the Boston-based Sephardic band, Voice of the Turtle. The group is no longer active, but their music is on Spotify, and their website remains a trove of Sephardic sounds. Listen and learn more at voiceoftheturtle.com. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions for making high-quality music available to creatives everywhere. And thanks to you, our audience, for your time and curiosity. Stay engaged with Joy in Conversation by subscribing on your podcast platform choice and visiting our website, joyinconversationpodcast.com. Beshufaku. We'll see you next time.